Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by social justice community builder, Evangeline Weiss. Evangeline is a queer, white, anti-racist social change agent with a twinkle in her eye. She facilitates change processes, workshops, and retreats to sustain leaders on a path towards intentionality, purpose, and impact. After earning a master's degree in educational policy studies, she's facilitated transformation in public health settings, social justice coalitions, and nonprofits, as well as schools and institutions of higher education. Evangeline is a social justice community builder, trainer, group facilitator, and the leadership programs director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. She connects to the values of the task force, racial and gender justice, relationship-oriented organizing, and sex positivity. Before working at the task force, Evangeline worked in HIV-AIDS advocacy projects in the 1990s in New York. She worked at the Gay Men's Health Crisis and the local needle exchange in the East Village and at ACT UP. She has worked in human resources and spent five years as the Director of Diversity and Equity for Duke University's Office for Institutional Equity. Working internationally, she has a great deal of experience collaborating with interpreters and is fluent in Spanish and French. Evangeline is an artist, poet, and mother, and to her, being her full self means embracing those parts of her while practicing love for everyone. She turned her television off in 1984 and occupies her time cooking, walking, and making art. Now, outside of work, Evangeline volunteers her time organizing white people against racism in her community as well as teaching workshops at other organizations. In January 2019, Creating Change, the task force premier annual event comes to Detroit. It's truly a -a one-of-a-kind organizing and skills-building event for the LGBTQ community and allies. At the task force, Evangeline works on the Creating Change conference. She helps the task force build relationships in the host city. As part of building these relationships, the task force will host Queering Racial Justice in Detroit on September 8th. Evangeline, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Thank you so much, Michelle. I feel incredibly honored 
to be here, and I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, uh, it's a busy time for us leading up to the conference, and I like being busy. And it's my son's first week of school, so there's a lot of um, momentum in our household right now. Mm-hmm. I loved, I mean, it just tickled me to know, in that you turned the TV off. I mean, you know, totally off or just sometimes off? That's a great question. Um, I, it's mostly off. I think, uh, you know, I've, I've watched a couple of movies um, over the Internet, and there have been some times where my friends have said, oh, come on, TV's getting better. Um, <laughs> check it out. And mm-hmm. I, I sort of balk at that. But I, I, a couple of times, but whether it's a family member or a trusted friend, They've turned me on to something, and I've said, okay, this isn't terrible, but I definitely, um, I'd say I spend less than one hour a week watching watching something popular culture-wise. Do you have a guilty pleasure on television that you sort of sneak and watch every now and then? Um, I mean, I like the Dear White People show. I definitely lean mm-hmm. on that, and um, mm-hmm. I love science fiction. So, oh, um, me too. A, okay. Yeah, the the Joss Whedon um, Firefly series mm-hmm. was, oh, was yeah. a total, yeah, that was a definite multicultural kind of science fiction, cowboys in outer space. It just, the, the whimsical aspect of it and the political aspect of it really intrigued me. So I do, I have indulged, but it's really, I, I'd much rather get my indulgences out in the world with real people. Well, thank God you didn't say one of the Real Housewives show, or we'd be done right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, it amazes me. People say, you've never watched that? I said, no, you know, but I know what you mean. You know, it's like some things are better, but sci-fi never lets me down, but I've really tried to step away from it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah, you see that. One of the things you said was that you were a poet. And, you know, in one of my other existences, I'm a poet, too. And so I went to look up some of the things. And I read one of your poems called Dead You on Video. And I was like, wow. I mean, I had to read it a few times. And then I sent it to some people, you know. What was the Mm -hmm. inspiration behind that? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I, I mean, it's an, it's a. I really appreciate the question. I guess in your job, you come up with the really juicy questions. Um, so I worked a lot in HIV and AIDS, and people were just dying everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was pretty devastating. I mean, there was a time period, in like 1994, 1995, um, when I was at GMHC and you know, I kept a black jacket on the back of my office door because you just never, you could come into work and be off to a funeral. And Mm. um, so a lot of my poetry is from that time period. And I really feel like I was writing to, I was writing to stay alive. Like I was writing to keep Mm -hmm. my spirit, to sustain me, um, to take care of myself at the end of a hard day. And so um, a friend of mine named David died, um, during, that it was a co- he was a coworker of mine, and I went to his um, wake and was sitting on his couch and just that the poem is the story of missing him and watching this weird 
video. You know, back then it was like they'd put the cassette in the in the cassette player and the VCR and just watching this video that his parents had kind of meshed together and just feeling the loneliness and the sadness and it was really it was a hard time. Mm. You know, I had talked to Reverend Romaine McCoy who was very active and then and I often remember, I mean, when you talked about the black jacket, I remember that I would see her, she worked in, in hospice work with people, and she would have this pager on, and every time the pager would go off, she knew she was going to see someone who was dying from AIDS and who was, you know, usually by themselves and with no family, but, but the importance of being there. And here you had that black jacket because you knew at any moment you'd be called to go and see this and be there for friends and family. Often being there, you were the family that wasn't there. Yeah, a lot of people got abandoned by their families. And living in New York, you know, I I was just telling this random story. Someone came over to my house recently, and they were pointing out some of my artwork. And how did you get such an art collection? And it's kind of a crazy, it makes me uncomfortable, and it's a beautiful and crazy story. But, you know, in New York, in the West Village in the 90s, you know, trash night, garbage night, there's a special night of the week that you can put out your larger items your furniture items, and when people were dying, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, Michelle, it was like trash night when it was the big item night on West 10th Street, you know, Bleecker Street in the West Village, you would walk down the sidewalks and entire apartments of mm. wealthy, wealthy people and their entire apartment because the parents, the family wouldn't come near it, right? It was like the plague. And so the the landlords would just empty these apartments out onto the sidewalk and I would like cherry pick art out of the the stuff that was being put out on the sidewalk and I have um I have a picture of Georgia O'Keeffe taken by George Stieglitz um that is like a this this beautiful photograph um that I got off off of 10th West West 10th Street so I mean it was a very very it's hard to describe, and I think for some people that didn't live through that, it's just a challenge to, to even try to imagine furnishing your entire house from people who've died of AIDS and, and they've discarded their, their, in many cases, beautiful possessions onto the sidewalk. Mm. Well, you know, and especially how important are these stories, especially now you have a days of, you know, people taking prep, People are living longer. You know, I was in um, a creating change in, in Chicago, and Phil Wilson was up there talking about, you know, how he never thought, you know, the possibility right. of having this long life is going to be there. And so, you know, but then sometimes we know the HIV age is still there. I mean, we know it's still happening. But to, to talk about these stories and what it was like to remind people that it's still there. How important are these stories? Yeah, I think it's a really valid. I, I, so there's two things that come up for me in that question. One is that we don't do civil disobedience anymore in the LGBT movement. There's very little. Like I remember ACT UP and Women's Action Coalition. Mm-hmm. And we were like chaining ourselves to the FDA and like throwing pig's blood on the stairs of the FDA, like we wanted the blood tested and big, big 
actions were happening. And I feel like now we put a lot of money and a lot of attention into political campaigns and wanting to get ballot measures passed and people elected to office. And the LGBT, camp the LGBT movement has become much more kind of professionalized and there are certain ways to advocate for change. But when you con contrast that with like Black Lives Matters, for example, mm. and what it means to like shut a highway down. And so part of what um, comes up to me in that question is that there was a time where white LGBT people side by side with um, people of color who identified as LGBT or allies, where we were together and we were linked arm to arm and we were doing civil disobedience together. And that doesn't happen very much at all now. Um, maybe now with pride being taken over by, you know, there's like all this corporate propaganda at pride, then you can sort of see the beginning of civil disobedience emerging in this LGBT context again. But for the last few decades, the, the same-sex marriage, for example, all of that work has been very sort of through the system. So I think some of these stories from ACT UP and from the past matter because I think that the skills of doing civil disobedience and organizing those kinds of um, those kinds of actions really it really matters. It's not all about organizing on Facebook. And I think that's one of the things that comes up for me in your question. And then the other thing that comes up for me is just the devastation of a generation of, of gay people and in, in many ways the loss of a generation of gay men of color who were by far mm. disproportionately impacted by AIDS and didn't have access to the medication, didn't have access to the health system, and in many cases had multiple problems like tuberculosis or hepatitis. So like there's there's such a richness that we've lost in that generation of, of gay men of color um, who, you know, like I think about Tongues Untied, what was his name? Mm -hmm. um, and it's like the that that loss of of talent, like all of that talent is gone. And I don't know what is going to take the place of that. And I don't know what to do with that loss. Like how do you ever stand into that and make up for for people who are no longer here. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you, you identify yourself as queer, white, anti-racist social change agent, okay? And even though, you know, like you said, you're just starting to see pride, there's many people who still see, when you say gay, they're thinking of white gay men. And the things that are happening to trans sisters of color like you, and even though we've got prep and all of that, you still have gay people of color who are have a, a high incidence of HIV, even despite all of this stuff. There's still ways that economically, on the socioeconomic scale, that there's this huge disparity between. When you go in, and I know that sometimes you go into like your own community and you're charging them. You know, you volunteer your time with white people against racism. How do you make that point? Because sometimes I'm, I've been in places where, you know, I'm talking about a Black Lives Matter and someone who's white and gay will say, well, you know, we're persecuted. And it's like, no, but it's different. How do you, as this queer white woman, how do you go into white people, your, your peeps, <laughs> And so to say, like, you know, 
remember what you just said, all the, the black talent that was lost in that this is our cause. Yeah, I I think it's I mean it's really really challenging. I I appreciate you so much. Um so I think one of the things that comes up is that white people um some way some of us see our our connection soul to soul, right? We recognize that this is about our humanity, right? And so from a very young age, I mean this is super weird, Michelle, but like I grew up in the suburbs of New York City in Westchester County, Scarsdale, and, like, I was 11, 12, 13 years old learning about American history, and I would walk around, and I was like, I'm walking on dead people, like the Mm. bones of American Indians. Like, we're talking about American history in school. Like, it's no big deal, or it doesn't have this implication for us. And I knew as a young white girl that what we were being told in school implicated me, that the civil rights movement and the genocide of American Indians somehow implicated my ancestors. And so for me personally, this has been part of my journey, my spiritual belief system, my whole life. Um, but when I, in terms of doing my work today, I look for people who are, who are frozen in shame, who are frozen in in anxiety because that's a place to start from. Some of my white brothers, sisters, siblings don't even know enough to be ashamed, right? Like they're, uh-huh. they, they don't even have that going on. So I sort of try to walk past them. Like there's not, they're not um, accessible yet. But so many of my white, the white people in my life um, are locked down in shame, are locked down in um, sadness and paralysis around what to do. And so that's an opening to say, hey, you don't have to be alone in your shame. You don't have to be alone in your paralysis. Like, let's talk about it. I'm here to engage you in a conversation about what it means to be in a multiracial world as a white person and do it with integrity. You know, it, it's interesting, and I, and I love talking to you because I, you get it, okay? And I know that recently I was like, you know, in Detroit, we're going through the, the hated word gentrification. And I had been down like in Midtown with a group of friends, and I was sitting with some of my white sisters, and we were sitting there, and there was this group of, of men, young white, who were moving into area, who were gay and talking about all of this, and we were talking about we were having a conversation about gentrification, and um, and they were having a totally different conversation about gentrification, like basically taking over. And my white friend said, you know what, you know, those are just colonizers. And I'm going to, oh, shades of Wakanda, <laughs> you know, you, you see what, what's happening. She said, they don't care about the people. They don't care about community. And she said, and the worst thing is they're gay. And I'm going like, well, you know, we have to work with them. We have to work with them. Do you see your worship task force, which is like one of the the larger organizations, I mean, you know, we've got a a, a handful of them. Do you see a change going? I know that when we were in Chicago, I I talked with Stacey Long-Simmons, and she was talking about even then that there was that need to be that shift to really make sure about being more inclusive and bringing all the voices 
to the table in your work sure. amongst community. Are you seeing that? Absolutely. I mean, I think as white people, um, white LGBT people recognize more and more that the, the, you know, the adage that we're not going to be free until we're all free. And we can't just be fighting for middle-class white gay people. And, I mean, one of the, in some ways, one of the beautiful things about the same-sex marriage movement being controversial, right, it's not like the same-sex marriage movement came and everybody was just like, woohoo, and we all worked on it, and it was, it was a beautiful thing. It was, it was a debate. It was highly debated in LGBT organizing space. Why are we choosing this issue? This is a white, middle-class, patriarchal issue. Why should we be fighting for this, right? This isn't about poor people. This isn't about trans people. This isn't about uh, jobs that give us decent pay. This isn't about affordable housing. Like, we've, just, we've, we've been thrown into this kind of... Um, movement moment where we have to fight for something that some of us, frankly, don't really care about and don't believe in. And I think that that debate really, in, I mean, I was open to it and welcomed it and facilitated many heated conversations about it. But I think for many white LGBT people, it was sort of like um, shocking that, pe- that queer people of color and allies of color were angry that we were going, mm. that we were focusing on this issue, and I think that the that it's changed now. I don't I don't think we can just talk about the LGBT movement in broad strokes. I think that there's more sensitivity to the fact that like trans women of color are targeted and murdered at completely unacceptable rates, and that we have to be talking about living wage and we have to be talking about economic justice, and that there's just no way for our um, LGBT policy agenda to be successful if it isn't a multi-issue agenda. So, I mean, you live, okay, you are in New York. Uh, the task force is headquartered in D.C. You live in North Carolina. When I, yeah, when, I, when I took the job at the task force, I moved to D.C. and I lived up in Silver Spring and I did that 90-minute commute each way into downtown and I thought, oh, my God, my son's going to be in college before I ever get to spend time with him. I mean, it was just, it was really depressing having to spend that much time commuting. Whether I took the bus or the train or I drove, it was just, it was hellacious. And my spirit was just feeling very, like, there's just not enough TED Talks you can listen to to make that uh-huh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, so... One of my colleagues was adopting a baby. Another colleague had just started grad school, and we were about to work on the same-sex marriage campaign for 2012. And my boss was like, I need someone to go to Maine. And I said, well, maybe, maybe my family would go to Maine. And I went home, and I talked to my partner, and we decided, sure, let's do it. So we moved with our son and um, Portland, Maine, and I became the training director for the same-sex marriage campaign up there. And then when the campaign was over, I was like, well, the cost of living is pretty good here and the air is clean and the ocean is beautiful and I think I'll stay in Maine for a while. Um, So I stayed beyond the the time of the campaign and the task force was happy to have me work remotely. And I've sort of been riding that wave of remotely. And um, I love North Carolina. I have many, many beautiful organizer friends here and I fell in love and North Carolina seemed like a good 
a good place to come back to. So in some ways, moving to Greensboro is kind of like coming home for me. And I, I um, work remotely on the Creating Change team from here, and I don't travel as much as I used to because the conference, my role helping manifest the conference is really um, the majority of my time. I, I occasionally go do some work. Um, I teach a, I train a cis ally training, and a lot of our LGBT partner organizations want to help their cis, as in cisgender, not trans or gender queer employees, um, get better at understanding gender fluidity and breaking the gender binary. So that's a training that I have, um, the task force lends me out to go do, mm -hmm. and I get some, we get some revenue for that. And, um, but I mostly work on the conference. Well, I love Maine. I used to, I mean, up until about 10 years ago, every summer I went to Maine. I love Maine. Maine is beautiful. But like you said, in Greensboro, I mean, I know so many kick-ass activists like Mandy Carter, you know, I mean, right. people who are, who are, I mean, Alexis Pauline Gums, I mean, who are just like, I'm going like, wow, well, maybe I should go check out Greensboro. I mean, it's just like so many amazing kick-ass people who are there, and now you. I mean, so it sort of seems like there seems to be a something that seems to be drawing people there. And there seems to also, I know that you're involved, there's something about Duke. I mean, there's so many amazing people I've met who have passed through or are, in, are involved with Duke University in one way, shape, or form. What is it about Duke? I mean, I think there's like a intellectual uh, thirst there to understand, um, to pursue things that maybe people don't necessarily want to concentrate on or force. I mean, one of my favorite projects in the world, and I know either you know it or you will know it soon, is the Polly Murray Project, which is out of their Human Rights Center. Um, mm -hmm. And Polly Murray is an incredible figure in our history that nobody knows or very few people know about her. It's changing because of the work of the Polly Murray Center, but she's a genderqueer. She was an Episcopal priest and a lawyer. She corresponded for years with Eleanor Roosevelt. She helped found the yeah, National, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, National Organization for Women. And so the Polly Murray Center does these beautiful um, workshops and community building about the importance of social identities and intersectionality and civic engagement. Um, and that's one of my favorite projects. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if it's Duke. I'm not, I think Durham. I mean, I don't, I don't want to not give Duke any credit. There's some amazing <laughs> scholars there. I mean, um, uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, Racism Without Racist, teaches there. Mm -hmm. And um, there's just, there's been so much good scholarship there. But I think Durham is actually in part, needs, deserves some credit. Um, I think that having a black middle class that thrived and having a black Wall Street and sort of a, um, a history of a city where race was always held firmly and clearly. Durham was never a sunset town. Um, I'm not saying that it's, a, that it's a, a cakewalk for black folks, but it's always been a city where political power has been content, like there's been contention, there's been active organizing in the, in black community and now with more and more Latino folks in North Carolina. I think it's, um, it's a place where race and the politics of race 
has a, a really rich history. The North Carolina Life Insurance Company is the first black-owned life insurance company in the country. Um, there's just a, a really incredible history there that I think has allowed for it to be a town and a city where white people can't just throw their weight around the way that mm. they have historically in, in other places. And so because of that, I think it, it pushes Duke and it pushes other institutions. Um, I mean, North Carolina, you know, Central's law school is like one of the best law schools there is. And I think it, you know, the, the politics and history of Durham, I think, pushes the institutions in Durham to, to really show up. And nobody, you just can't hide from conversation about um, race or conversation about class or LGBT matters for that, you know, it's, and that I think is a provocative and rich place to, to be doing work. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to take our first break here. And if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Evangeline Weiss. She is the leadership programs director at the National Gay, Lesbian, LGBTQ Task Force. And we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here talking with Evangeline Weiss. Um, Weiss. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm just going to hyphenate the wrong thing. You know, one of the other things that, that I thought was, which is still going on, that after the 2016 election, when we knew that, you know, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, you and Carrie Points designed a Finding Freedom workshop. How has yeah. that worked? to equip more white women to find their freedom, to stop voting against their own best interest? Yes. Well, we have had, um, we've done the workshop twice, and we've had a couple of learning, learning edge experiences trying to do the workshop um, again. And now we're about to do it three more times. So it's been kind of, it's had fits and starts, if you will. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure, I hear your question being about the impact on the participants, so I'll, I'll go there first. But the, okay, the, well, both the, ways. I think that one of the biggest takeaways participants get is that so many white, I mean, we're advertising this through Eventbrite and Facebook, and we're getting strangers. It's not, I mean, just our Rolodexes alone, like, you know, your friendship list, my friendship list, put it together. We're probably going to get some fairly well-intentioned white progressive women that we know, and that would be good. But because of stretching and trying to advertise it into 
spaces that are less familiar, we've reached a, a quite a handful of white women who I think were feeling fairly isolated in their communities. And from our evaluation data, um, we had 65 women at the first one and a waiting list. And then we, had, mm. we decided that was too many people to do the work with effectively. So in the second workshop, we had about 45 women and the, the same feedback both times that people just feel so alone, right? They're, they're, they're sitting, I mean, in a very particular location, geographically, socially, economically. Um, I, and we weren't just reaching out to queer white women. We had, you know, women who, um, well, across gender identities and sexual orientations. And I think that there was just this feeling of, oh, my God, I don't need to assume that all the other white women in my life are not on the same page as me or aren't changeable. And I think that was a very valuable takeaway for people is to be more courageous at looking up and look around the room when you're at that staff meeting next week and think to yourself, maybe the other white women in here actually have more political thinking about race and racism than you think they do or than you're giving them credit for. And that was a huge sort of takeaway, I think, for the participants to be more brazen and more courageous about checking out some of their assumptions. Um, well, you know, that makes me, you know, and one of the things, I, after the first Women's March, I had been invited to an event out, you know, in a suburb that normally I wouldn't go to. But I said, okay, I'm going to go. And, of course, it was just me <laughs> and a bunch of, of white women. And there was a woman who was there who sort of sat quietly in the corner. And then after a while, outed herself as having voted for Donald Trump. She was, like, on one issue. It was abortion. And now she was having, for lack of a better word, buyer's remorse, recognizing that, you know, there were a whole lot of other things that she should have thought about. And this group of white liberal women who crossed all genres, um, sexual orientation, I mean, they just sort of like wanted to like, just sort of like jump on her, like, you know, like basically, you know, tar and feather and run her out of town on a rail. But it was sort of like, well, wait a minute, you know, she's here, you know, she's here. So, you know, we don't like what she did then, but, you know, she is here. We right. need to reach out. And I've had, even afterwards, when I've told this story, people say, I wouldn't even talk to her. You know, how can we yes. talk to them? But we might right. talk to them and Absolutely. identify them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that was, the, that was the impetus for me and Carrie developing the workshop was we can't just walk away. Like all those pink pussycat hats need to be educated on critical race theory. Like all the all the work that needs to go to turning this around. And, um, you know, you, if you were, uh, I don't know that we're Facebook friends, but I just posted this yesterday. I posted a thing saying we have to stop judging each other. Like we're not going to get, we're not going to change 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. And we need to get courageous and we need to be able to go home for Thanksgiving or go home for grandma's birthday or whatever it is that brings you around that family table. And whether you're trans or you're gay, whatever your story is, you have to be willing to stretch and say, hey, I need to talk about this with you all because it's not okay. 
and this is why it's not okay, and this is what I need to understand and, and figure out how are we going to engage across this line of difference because it, if it's not us reaching those white women, then who is it going to be, right? And the connection to sexism is key. So in the training, the Finding Freedom workshop that you're asking about, we unpack the combination of being the subject, like being subjected to sexism and misogyny and then turning around with our anger and our frustration. I don't like how my man treats me. I don't like how my father treats me. I don't like being talked down to. And now I'm going to turn around as a white woman and I'm going to react because I'm frustrated and angry and I feel disrespected. And who am I going to take that out on? Oh, people of color. That's who I'm going to take it out on. So we give folks a chance to unpack both experiencing sexism and perpetuating white supremacy. Mm. You know, and it's interesting. And I think that it's great that, you know, that you're doing it because often like when, when after the same thing afterwards that someone says, see, that's why we need you. I said, but you know what? That's your tribe, (laughs) you know? And yes, as a woman of color, I can come and raise these issues and do all that. But really, you know, I'm not trying to guilt anybody or sort of say, hey, look at me. But really, you know, it was nice, nice to sort of say, you know, like, that's your tribe. And, you know, there are things that you can relate to other white women that I can't, you know, that, that isn't coming from a way that really helps them evolve and see that maybe you can reach people that I couldn't. So, I mean. Absolutely. But, you know, mm-hmm. we get. We get, we get so much pushback. I mean, this is something that is really hard for me. It's a tender place for me because, you know, when, I, when we advertise on Facebook, for example, women of color say, thank you so much for doing this. And there's, like, strangers that I've never met before who I perceive to be women of color based on their profile picture are bringing us gratitude. And white women say, I can't believe you're doing this. This is disgusting. This is terrible. I'm not ashamed to be white. And like we get a tremendous amount of antagonism from some level of white women. And then there's this whole other category of white women that kind of, they sort of are soft about it, but they're like, well, are people of color involved in this? And I don't feel comfortable with a white person making money off of race and racism and they engage in this kind of Socratic discussion that sort of feels like an accusation and goes mm. contrary to what you're saying. It's sort of this um, almost like uh, punitive, like like trying to shame me, like you shouldn't be doing this because, you know, people of color need to make a living doing this. And so this piece that you're bringing about the importance of white people working with other white people is, I think it's true, and I think we have to do it in community, right? We have to have accountability to people of color. But I, I do wonder about this, like, this very kind of messy place of um, what it means for white people to take the mic in conversations about racial justice. And I'm very, very particular now about when I do that and when I don't do that because I think it's really, really tricky. I don't want to make racism about my feelings, and I also think we can't ignore white people's nonsense. And so mm. white people need to talk to other white people about our nonsense. Mm. 
Yeah, that's great. You know, and really, and I think that that's it, you know, to have that conversation and to be able to have, then when you come to the table, it gives a level of validity. You know, it's like, yeah, you get it. You know, it's, you can never, you aren't going to wake up with a black face, but you can show the issues that are the same. You know, because, like, sometimes if you talk about people who are who are all about the abortion issue, well, you know, but aren't you concerned about kids and all of our kids are being failed? You know, so there are ways that you, you to sort of bring people to where at least they're all on the same page. Yeah. No, for sure. I think there's a, a need. I mean, what I, usually, what I often say is, look, racism is really complicated, right? It's mm-hmm. institutional, it's cultural, it's individual on individual, and it's very complex. And so racial justice, our tactics to achieve racial justice have to be equally complex. Right? We're going to need to change institutions. We're going to need to change the culture. We're going to need to change our individual relationships. Like we have, there's room for all of us in this, right? Some of us are going to want to go shake our fists and carry a sign, and some of us are going to say, no, that's not for me. But I'll go to that search committee meeting, and I'll tell the chair of my department that this stack of CVs doesn't have one person of color in it, and that's unacceptable, and that we can't hire from this stack of CVs until we have more people of color applying for this job. And that's a form of activism right there, right? Like that's just as important that you go to your like chemistry faculty meeting and tell the chair of your department that you're not okay with the hiring process. Like that takes just as much courage. It's a different kind of courage than standing outside holding a sign. But it's like, I, what I don't like is when we tear each other down and we say, well, my form of activism is the best form and what mm-hmm. you're doing over there is just intellectual masturbation or it's just this or that. And it's like, you know, that's just not helpful. We need all hands on deck right now. That's right. That is so true. And, you know, and to be able to talk frankly about these things and even especially about race because, you know, it's real, and to, we don't live in a post-racial society. It's real, but they are, and to like sort of like turn your eye, your back to like, oh well, you know, I'm not trying to do that, and to sort of say that, well, if you do this training, our people of color, they are, then you know, is it right? Well, you know what, everything, maybe people of color, we get it, and we don't need to do it, you know. I mean, so maybe there has to be a way that identifying race and not use it as a means not to do things but do things to move forward. Right. Absolutely. And I think there are some, like, there, like caucusing is a tool that I'm just shocked more people don't know about caucusing. Quite, I mean, it just surprises me. But not everybody needs to be in the room for every conversation. So mm-hmm. having a multiracial group of people come together, you don't need to subject people of color to white people telling their sad story. Like, that's totally unnecessary, right? Mm-hmm. The folks of color can be in a separate room having a conversation about how do I thrive in a majority white space? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's the conversation that the folks of color could benefit from having, as an example. And mm-hmm. white people need to do our work separate so that we're not – you know, we're not using the people of color's time and just having them like, I don't know, there's something that just feels, or turning to people of color and saying, tell us, your, your, tell us about your pain so that we can believe mm-hmm. that racism exists. 
I mean, that just pisses me off. It's like you don't need to hear your colleague who you sit next to day in and day out for five years and watch this person struggle with the, way, the things that they're struggling with in the institution. And you know that racism is there, but you want to go to the meeting and you want to see that person tell their story so that you can, like, absorb it and then say, oh, okay, so racism is real? I mean, that's cuckoo bananas. Why, would, mm-hmm. why do we need to set that up? So I think there's some work that people of color and white people absolutely need to do together. And I think there's some work that white people and people of color absolutely should not do together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you would say, I mean, some would say, okay, the task force, it's like, an organization, but in some ways it's sort of like an institution. People come there. People are coming to learn things. What made you decide to say, okay, that I'm not just, you're not being just a paid gay. You're going there and you are, by your presence and your position, really creating change. Yes. I, I think one of my one of my strongest beliefs about the National LGBTQ Task Force is that we are doing social justice work intersectionally. We are doing a tremendous amount of work for LGBT liberation for all people in our community, which means we're working on immigration, we're working on the school to prison pipeline, we're working on reentry issues, we're working on a living wage, we're working on disability justice. But at all of those tables, we are the gay people in the room because mm-hmm. there are gay people in prison. There are gay people living with disabilities. There are gay people in poverty. So that's what's inspiring to me is recognizing that here's an organization that's not going to be only for the, like, Condé Nast gays, if you will. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you show up at that, yeah, and I think that that's, that's really important. We need to be there. We need to be there and identify clearly as we're the gay person in the room, but also that we're talking about, like, you know, a fair wage. You know, the issues of fair wage, you're not just talking about fair wage for gay people. We're talking about the importance of fair wages and by the fact that we have fair wages and income equality across the board, how it lifts the entire community up. And a exactly. lot of hatred and biases come from these inequalities. But do you ever find that when you come in that people want to say, okay, well, we're not ready to talk about the gay stuff. We're glad you're here, but we're not ready to talk about the gay jobs. You know, that you have to break out yes. of that box and say, wait a minute. Yes, I think um, so that happens particularly, I suspect, for my colleague Candace Bond-Thoreau, who's our reprojustice person. Um, And I'm sorry, I'm not saying her whole job title. It's kind of a very long one. But Candace runs the reproductive justice part of the work that the task force does. And I think reproductive justice is a place where a lot of straight people scratch their heads and go, reproductive justice? Why would the LGBT task force want to be involved with reproductive justice? And yet, if you think about it, it's such an integral part to LGBT people being able to build a family. Mm -hmm. So folks want to have children, they want to have access to children, or they don't want to have children, they want to have access to birth control. And so reproductive justice, which is about having control over when, how you want to have a family, if you want to have a family, um, how you want to have a family, is definitely an LGBT issue. But I think 
that that is not something that people go to immediately when they think about like what are the LGBT issues. Um, another place where I think people go, wait, wait, we're not ready for the gay voice is in our faith organizing work. And we, the task force has spent a tremendous amount of resource, both people and money and time, organizing leaders and lay people in faith communities to take on their brothers and sisters in the church um, in various denominations um, because that's where so much of the opposition comes from. And I think that's something that we've seen in the last, I'm going to say, 10 years, this huge shift of more and more of a progressive faith voice. And my colleague Naomi Leapart Washington, who's going to be at Clearing Racial Justice, is doing a workshop on Is Your God a White Racist? and reclaiming LGBT faith from white supremacy. So really looking at the relationship between um, sort of this prop, uh, the propaganda, if you will, of white Jesus and looking at how LGBT people have been so traumatized by their faith communities in so many cases. What does it mean to reclaim God? What does that look like? And how do we not reclaim a God who is going to represent a white supremacist ideology? You know, I think the other thing that's great is like often, and you know, especially like in civil rights, but just like even in reproductive rights, where people have said, well, where are the gay people? You know, you want us to come and rally for you, but where were you when we were fighting for this? But often we were right there. We've been in the church pews. We've marched, but we didn't, we didn't, we did it as part of that other part of our, you know, like if we were black, we did it because we were black, we were writing for civil rights. If we were in church, you know, I mean, but we didn't now to have that representation. And like you said, reclaiming our time going, no, what do you mean? We were always right here. Now exactly. we're saying, you know, how important is that, too? It's so like, you know, because often it's like people are like, oh, well, like it's brand new. No, it's not brand new. You know, we've been there uh, all along. Yes, it's so true. And, and, you know, one of the task force's beliefs in our campaign organizing is about honesty, right? And so we would encounter in the, I'm going to say in like the mid-2000s, when we started working in California and um, a couple of other campaigns about and it was the very, very beginning of the same-sex marriage movement, um, there would be these canvases organized and phone banks organized by LGBT organizations where they, they wrote, you know, we write these scripts for, the, for the, the engagement, whether it's at the door or on the phone, and no one wanted to say gay in the script. Mm. And what we would come in and we would say, we're not going to do it that way. We can't. We can't do it that way. We, we have to be honest. And if that means coming out on the phone or coming out at the door, for some people that's great. Um, for other people it can look a different way. But we're not going to have this entire campaign where we just talk about um, the importance of fairness as an example. It would be like fighting for civil rights without naming blackness, right? It's like mm-hmm. we're just going to – we just want same fame right? and just leave it at mm-hmm. that. And the task force would show up in these communities and we would say, no, we're actually going to write gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. We are going to describe our community and we are going to be honest that that's what we're talking about. Now, you know, one of the things that I like the fact that, you know, and it's part of your job, 
that um, the task force builds relationships with the city because, like I said, we've always been there, but I think that that's also the part that as you, you help people within the community come out and who's doing um, work around fair wages, who's doing work about reproduction, thing, it also helps that community when you leave is stronger because it recognizes, you know, it's not, we don't just have to go and find this one group. We've got all these groups, and they're not only coming to the table, but they have a voice. How yep. do, when you, when you go into each city and, you know, looking, you're coming into Detroit. Had you been to Detroit before? What did you know about Detroit? And what do you see just from the outside as you're starting to pull things together? Are some of the, the un, not un, underrepresented strengths of this area's LGBTQ community that you're trying to bring out here, but also because we know people from all across the world come to Creating Change. What do you want them to get out of why I come to Detroit? Right, absolutely. Well, this is, the, this is Creating Change's third time in Detroit. Yep. So we have had the pleasure of watching Detroit um, change. I, I know the um, 2008, it, or no, 2000, and, yeah, maybe it was 2008 was the last time. And then 19, mm-hmm. it was like 1994, I want to say, was the first time. Um, so I think the evolution of our relationship to the state of Michigan and to the city of Detroit, I mean, I worked on a campaign in um, Royal Oak uh, a couple of years ago. So the task force has had municipal relationships with Michigan as well as like statewide relationships. Kalamazoo was a city we worked in. So I think there's always been this like pretty strong connection between our work in Michigan. And I think Detroit, um, you asked about sort of, well, the importance of working locally is that we absolutely believe that it's our job to lift up the, the beauty of what's happening on the ground in the city where we are. And, I mean, Detroit has a lot of organizing happening in it. The amount of change that's happened in the city over the last 20 years has been pretty significant, and I think that you know, calls for lots of organizing to happen, whether it's pro or anti. There's a lot of momentum and motion. Um, I think that some, there are some similarities that we see across the country of the LGBT community feeling the tension of race and racism, and I think that's why the task force is always really proactive about a racial justice conversation because we see it as so it's such a pattern and it's so pervasive in Philadelphia, in D.C., there, there's, this, um, there's this sense of like two communities. And maybe you can relate to this idea of like sometimes with um, bar time in our community, it's like the women go to one bar and the men go to another. And it's like it's some communities that are small enough that they can't support two gay bars. And so everybody has uh-huh. to drink at the same place. But I think that there's also a, a, a terrific amount of racial segregation within LGBT space. And I think Detroit has actively engaged that question. Um, LGBT Detroit has actively taken that on. The Affirmations Ferndale phenomenon versus the downtown Detroit, um, the movement of the, um, the LGBT pride parade from, from Ferndale into Detroit, and mm-hmm. still yet hotter than July existing. So like having this recognition that our subcultures, our communities are still seeking um, 
to feel special, to feel recognized, to feel visible. I know there was recently the trans day in the park that I saw, I read about. So I think there's like a, a pattern of people in the community wanting to make sure that they don't get lost in the shuffle. And I think what's beautiful about creating change is that it creates space for all of those subcultures to um, come together, to be seen, to have particular space, but to also share space across those differences. Um, I'm not sure. I think I'm answering your question, but tell me. Oh, yeah. No, you know, what, what, what's so interesting is, uh, you know, I talked to someone from another organization who happened to be in C, and he said pretty much the same thing that you did about what is happening in Michigan and in Detroit. And it was like, the way that things are happening in Detroit could be a template, a model for other communities that are going through much of the same thing. So it's it's interesting to me that you're saying, you know, two totally different focused organizations, but are seeing these strengths and this, the contradictions and the complementations in Detroit of what can be, can be for the larger LGBT community, as many places, particularly in your Rust Belt states, are going through some of the same things. So absolutely, absolutely. It's um, I think there's like a. It's kind of reminding me a little bit of what I said about Durham. Like mm-hmm. Detroit is a city where race can't hide. Like people have to show up around race, whether whether they know it or not. And I mean, some of that might be the history of. Um, uh, some of that might be the history of music, some of that might be the history of the car industry and union organizing, but there's just so much about about Detroit that, for me, um, says, hey, you have to show up smart when it comes to race here. You're not going to uh-huh. be successful as a leader in this community if you can't have an intelligent conversation about race. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I often say that, you know, I mean, you cannot think about, if you think about, the African-American experience, particularly, but, and, but not only that, but the Latino, the immigrant experience from the northern migration to where many people, after they hit Ellis Island, they caught the train and came to Detroit because of the auto industry. I mean, there's all of this. Detroit has always been this, this petri dish, you know, of change and creating change and, and things happening, you know, where you talk about civil rights and people looking for a better life for themselves and the racial issues. So, I mean, I mean, from all over, we have such a a huge, diverse community. We have, you know, we have a large Arabic community. At one point in time, there were more people from the country of Yemen living around Hamtramck than there were in the actual country, you know? I mean, so, I mean, we just have this rich, rich, rich history of finding a way Sometimes smooth, sometimes bumpy, but finding a way of making a way out of no way. So, mm. so I'm, I'm glad too. you're coming. Yeah, I'm glad. Oh my God, we're so thrilled, and I, I really um, am proud of the Queering Racial Justice event that's happening on Saturday, September eighth at Wayne. Well, we're going to take a what? Let's take our, our our next break, and then we'll, I want to come back and talk specifically about that. So we will be right back.
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back talking about what's coming to Detroit, Creating Change 2019, but the Queering Racial Justice Program, which is coming September 8th with Evangeline Weiss. Okay, Queering Racial Justice Program. What is it? How did it come about? What's the history of it? Um, Queering Racial Justice came about, uh, this will be the third year, so two years ago in Philadelphia, and um, one of, as I mentioned, one of the things the task force is really determined to do is keep racial justice front and center in our work. So if you look at all of our programmatic work as an organization, we are asking the question all the time about how our dollars impact communities of color. That is a consistent thread throughout our organization. And um, Creating Change has a Racial Justice Institute, the Wednesday of the conference. It's the first day. And it's a very successful program. And the time I've been helping manifest it, um, it's gone from like 350 people to about 1,200 people. So it's a huge, huge, huge lift. And um, clearly the task force is seen as being able to deliver good racial justice training to LGBTQ people. And so we thought, well, what about if we did an event similar to RJI, Racial Justice Institute, but slightly different, calling on the talent of people in the community about three months before creating change, right about the time the RFPs come out for the larger conference. So we, we tried it out in Philly, and it was super successful. And so we're, we've kept doing it. Um, this will be the third year. And the real purpose of it is to build relationships with local organizers, to recognize that there is a lot of racial justice work happening in the community that we're in, in this case in Detroit, and to lift up those voices. We pay people to, do their, to present their training, and we sort of curate a, a day of what are the conversations about race that this community wants to have. And we put out a call to see who wants to come to the table. So that's what Saturday, September 8th is about. It's at Wayne State University in the Student Center. And it's a sliding scale fee. Um, we have scholarships. If we, we don't want money to be a barrier for anyone. And we feed people. We feed people breakfast. We feed people lunch. There'll be voter registration. Um, the president of Wayne State's president is going to um, give an address. President Wilson is going to welcome people. And um, we're working with lots of different organizations. Some of them are more known in Detroit, and some of them might be individual, um, individuals who are sort of getting started with what they want to bring. Um, there's going to be workshops on facilitating using an anti-oppression lens, and what does organizing look like, and sex work, and how LGBT youth are more at risk for homelessness, and therefore more at risk for um, being, sex, being trafficked. Um, and so 
lots of different conversations. Um, I'm trying to think an HIV and AIDS workshop. There's going to be something on ACE sexuality and the over-sexualization of African-American people and how ACE as a sexual orientation is an, an important identity for many people in the black community. Um, there's going to be a preview of a movie about masculine of center lesbians. And I'm, I'm just really excited about the program. There's going to be something mm-hmm. on sex work as uh, healing work. There's going to be a healing space run by Healing by Choice, which is a women of color collective of healers. And they're going to do Reiki and ear, acu- ear point acupuncture and also teach a workshop on how to how to facilitate healing circles. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about the program, and I feel like sometimes my job as a white person is to just, like, funnel the money to people of color to be smart together. Mm-hmm. So, okay, um, when you say people of color, okay, um, what groups are going to be represented? Is it just, uh, you know, usually people go like, it's become sometimes just a code for just being black and Latino, but we do have, you know, uh, API sure. community. So are you reaching out to all of these identities that are in, in Detroit? And yeah. um, if someone were to come and sort of say, you know, will my group be there? Will I find my, my tribe? What, what do you say to them? That's a great question. I mean, in some ways, it's like who has the time to say yes, who has the time to show up and can prioritize it. Um, So there's definitely black and Latinx trainers and people in the program. There's a Palestinian trainer in the program. There's a couple of folks who identify as indigenous, American Indian. Um, So I would say that um, overall, I think we're doing a good job of representing a lot of different ethnicities and racial identities, um, and I completely agree with you that, um, or I, I completely recognize that some folks could show up and say, where are my people? And I mm-hmm. think that that's always, um, that's always like a balancing act, and that's always the work of trying to, to manifest something that feels well-rounded and whole, and also to recognize that people some community organizations are easier to make contact with and connect with and have a quicker response rate and it can fall into sort of a bureaucratic hole. And also mm-hmm. I know that we, we can take responsibility for doing more to reach out to folks. Um, and I hope that creating change, we will have even more representation and even more um, success with meeting, peop- with meeting the, the wide range of um, ethnicities and diversity that there is in the POC umbrella. Well, we you think that, that uh, QRJ is a good place for people to sort of come and get an, a feel for it, but then it's not too late for them to be involved in creating change. You know, uh, not at all. Like the host, <laughs> right, the host committees. So what, one of the infrastructures that we create is we have a host committee for creating change. And so folks can find out more at QRJ about joining the host committee. Um, also, we just put out our submit a proposal email, just went out today. So if you go to the www.creatingchange.org website, um, you can find a submit a proposal, the top left button on the website. And um, we are accepting proposals till September 21st. 
So okay. I would really love it if your listeners um, considered submitting a proposal. And when people come to QRJ on September 8th, there'll be someone at the front of the room. It might be me. It might not be me who says, hey, don't forget. <laughs> Don't forget to submit a proposal for creating change. We'd love it if everybody did that. So um, it's definitely not too late to submit a proposal or get involved in one of the 16, there are 16 subcommittees of the host committee to help manifest creating change. So it's a big, it's a big machine. Now you said at the querying uh, racial justice is at Wayne State. What are the hours? Um, we're calling folks to come at 9 so they can get something to eat and check in, and then the program starts at 9.30. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, we're going to end that. the day around 5.30. Okay. And so, um, Anne, you said there was a sliding scale uh, for to come and scholarships. What is the sliding scale? Sure. Um, so $35 is the bottom of the scale, and I'm actually not looking at the registration form right now, so I'm okay. sorry. I don't have the top end of the scale. Um, we have it, the way that we make the distinction is, are you, is your organization paying for you to come? So, for example, you work at the Department of Health, and your boss is paying for you to go. That's one set of prices. Or you're just paying on your own, out of your own pocket. That's a different set of prices. And um, so the lowest amount is $35. And then if you send an email to qrj at thetaskforce.org, you can request a scholarship and just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you hope to get out of attending, and we'll be happy to send you a comp. And will there be child care? There's not child care. Um, we don't have the space in the building okay. to provide child care. Okay. Well, I always have to ask <laughs> because we have, like I said, we have members of our community who have kidlets, so we have to ask about that. You know, um, you know, as you go on, and I mean, you're doing this, you're going to come to Detroit, you're going to do it, I don't, um, then you have your next stop, you know, and you come going, what? If you had your wish list and you said, like, in the next five years, what would you really like to focus on, either besides the 2020 election and, and the 2018? Um, besides, you know, what, what, are you look, what are you looking for that you would like to see come out of our community that would say, you know, we're moving the bar? Absolutely. I think... Um I mean, it's funny, I think as I've gotten older, I'm 51 now, and I think like in the last few years of thinking about this question for the LGBT movement, I think a lot about the legacy of like what are sort of taking us back to the beginning of our conversation about civil disobedience and different ways of manifesting social transformation. What are some of the ways that we can be passing the baton to the next to next generations of organizers, and what are the ways that we can learn from the next generation? So if I'm, I consider myself an older, how can I learn from a younger? And for mm. folks who are younger, how can they learn from olders? And how do we do this cross-generational work so that some of the richness of how I learn to do some of the magical, beautiful things that I do um, can be passed on? And then how can I enhance my skill set and recognize the need to learn and adapt new things 
from the the next generation. And I, I feel like that conversation, no one really seems to be holding that down as much as I think we need to. I, I agree because often, you know, you hear people will go like, oh, well, you know, the millennials should do that or, you know, or, or don't include this group or don't include that group. And I think that what you're saying, it's so important. I mean, one of the people who I've had as a guest who I, I consider a friend is Dr. Wilhelmina Perry, who's in New York. And she talks about how she has eight, eight friends who range from like, you know, millennials on to people her age, and she's in her 80s, and how they they share information, they share history. Some of them are teaching other ones new things and how it sort of keeps everybody, it makes for a very vibrant, growing community and knowing that the baton isn't going to get dropped. There'll be someone right there who's going to pick it up. And young people are looking for that because not long after I had talked to her, I had talked to a young person at Ruth Ellis who was like early 20s who said her concern was what could she learn so that the kids who were younger than her, she could do something for them and pass it on. So I think that intergenerational work and that, you know, it's not exclusive. You know, we don't have to be in our age-specific silo. Mm-hmm. It makes for a more vibrant community. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, it's one of the things I cherish about the task force. We have such a multi-generational staff and it's such a beautiful thing at the staff meeting because everyone's always learning like a new word for something or a new term or telling a story from the olden days, you know, and it just feels uh-huh. like it feels very cross-generational and I so appreciate that. And I think that some, I mean, I think a funder or someone needs to invest in movement building, like the LGBT movement needs to have a space where history is being taught, where organizing skills are being taught, and where people are being able to answer that young woman, her call from the Ruth Ellis Center saying, hey, what do I need to learn? And a lot of the spaces right now that that are um, sort of owning, if you will, these conversations, they're really pretty white and they're really pretty middle class, and they don't have a gender or a racial justice lens. Like, I don't see the full package out there. And maybe that's something that the task force will take up. Maybe that's something that someone listening will go, oh, I have an idea for that. But um, it just feels like we need a racial, gender justice, movement building, history, organizing skills, something that, that folks can have access to and really take on. And we have a little bit of that in different pieces of work at the task force, but it's really not the full the full bucket of tools. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate the the work that you're doing because by sharing my stories and us having this conversation, you know, I feel like that's one way that we do that, right? We were able to catalyze people to to think about, oh, what was it like in nineteen ninety four in the West Village versus what is it like in Miami right now, today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well I want to thank you for being with me. I look forward to to seeing you on in September for Queering Racial Justice and everyone for Creating Change. I mean, I'd be curious to find people who were here in 2008 because when they came in, 
so much has happened in Detroit as far as change effects. I remember then when they came to look at it as being a particular site, it was right after we had hosted the Super Bowl, so everything was all shiny and new. But things have just changed on two different levels. There's the whole midtown explosion, mm-hmm. and then there's things that are happening out in the community where you have people who are talking about, you know, food oasis and they're growing their food and doing from from the garden to the table and and you know we have tiny yeah. houses going up in one area that are, are providing homes for people who were formerly homeless and LGBT Detroit now has its own building and in fact at that point in time it was it, it's changed named and has its own building and is developing around that area so there's so much that has happened that we want to show the world, <laughs> the creating change world, and so much that we want to, to learn from you. And I thank you for all you're doing. And um, oh, if someone wants to read even more of your poetry, how can we find out? Oh, my gosh, you're so, that's such a great question. I kind of got shy about it. I, I have an unpublished manuscript of poems that I, um, I don't really know what to do with it. So I have a, most of them are about the body. They're about HIV mm-hmm. and AIDS. They're about, it's about embodying who we are in the world. And I, I have a couple of things that have been published over the years, but mostly it just sits on my, on my hard drive of my computer. So that's a pretty terrible answer to your question. I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll take a sabbatical and I'll try to get this thing out of my computer and into the world. Um, I really appreciate you for asking the best questions, and I love that you did that research on, I mean, I couldn't believe it when you pulled Dead, dead You on video out there. I was like, what? So thank you for a chance to, to be with you. I really have enjoyed my time so much. Oh, okay, well, look, you have a, a great weekend, and like I said, I will see you in September. All right, take good care. Okay, bye-bye. I want to thank today's guest, social justice community builder, Evangeline Weiss. Evangeline is Leadership Program Director at the National LGBTQ Task Force. She works on the Creating Change Conference, which comes to Detroit in January 2019, helping the task force build relationships in the host city. Part of her responsibilities for building these relationships includes the Queering Racial Justice Program being held in Detroit on September 8th at Wayne State University. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.